As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by The Athletic in association with The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan from The Square Ball here with Michael Normanson, also from The Square Ball. And Phil Hay from The Athletic and straight from Jesse Marsh's press conference. Uh, Phil, we'll get to that in just a minute or two. First of all, to let you know, you can subscribe to The Athletic to read Phil's writing. Theathletic.com forward slash leads pod pound a month for six months. Uh, what's there this week, please, Philip? What have we got? Uh, follow-ups from Chelsea, obviously, on Sunday. Uh, a long read on the bits and pieces that Marsh has changed since he arrived as head coach, how he's kind of taken them from crisis point to a weekend of promise like uh, last weekend. We've got a bit on Archie Gray. We've got some stuff on transfers. Um, and we've also got, I, I do need to actually write this and work out when we're going to run it, but we'll have a piece coming very soon on uh, Andy's Man Club. I went down to the Castleford meeting on Monday night, which was a real eye-opener and very, very enlightening. And obviously when we did the walk uh, from Wales to Leeds, um, one of the big charities that we were raising money for was AMC. So yes, look out for that at some point soon. Yeah, Andy's Man Club, it's like it's a peer-to-peer support group, isn't it, for men they meet. For two hours, Monday evening, seven till nine, um, they have meetings all over the country uh, where you can go and talk if you want to. And if you don't, you don't have to. It's amazing, really. And um, without going into anything that happened down there, because obviously the, the rules are the rules, Um it's, it's a bit like Fight Club, isn't it? You don't talk about it. <laughs> it, it is. It is, mi- minus the um, obscene violence and horrendous injuries at the end of it. It struck me constantly sitting through it that it's charitable um, enterprise and it's voluntary. And, you know, the five facilitators that I met down at the Castleford Club, none of them get paid or anything like that. It's, it's, all, it, it's all done through pure personal motivation to help other people. Um, and, you know, they repeat the stat about the fact that I think below the age of 45, Suicide is the the biggest killer of of men in in the UK, and that gets repeated over and over again. But it never really sinks in properly, I don't think. And I found myself on Wednesday sitting before the Barnsley game, looking at people in the crowd, you know, men in the crowd, thinking to myself, the most likely thing to kill these guys below the age of forty five is suicide, and that's really scary. And I and I, I can't see outside of things like Andy Andy's Man Club the sort of support network that is there, you know, to speak to people who you can relate to and who really understand you and who will support you in the way that they do. So it's a it's a big deal. It's doing incredibly good things. And I say to anybody listening who's in two minds about going, who maybe wants to go but is a bit worried about going, everybody who goes seems to be worried about going. One of the um, facilitators, Alex, was saying to me that he'd driven to the same club six times without actually going through the door before he finally did. But the help that it seems to give people and the difference it seems to make is really obvious uh, once you, you get inside. So if you if you have the time and if you have the inclination, I think it will help you a lot. Yep, look up your local Andy's Man Club. As I said, there are uh, there are meetings right across the country and even more to come thanks to the money we raised as well um, on the charity walk, which I think made us all feel good from a personal point of view, wasn't it? To support such a worthy cause. Horrendous from a physical point of view, great from a personal point of view, yeah. Yep. And uh, look forward to reading that on The Athletic, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod if you're not yet signed up. Phil Hayshaw, this then it's twice a week, Mondays and Fridays. Mondays we react to the weekend's game and then the Friday edition we uh, react to Jesse Marsh's press conference and preview the upcoming game and catch up on all the latest Leeds United stuff as well. So the latest Leeds United stuff is a routine win 
in the league cup, Phil. We, we, well, we did it. we did the match ball over on our podcast last night, straight after the game, and I think we found it a little bit confusing because ultimately it was just a routine win for Leeds United in a cup competition against lower league op- opposition, and it was difficult to know what to say. It just kind of it went all right. Well, we have a policy at the Athletic that for the early rounds of the league cup, if there's nothing of note going on in the game, nothing that really jumps out. Don't bother writing about it. You know, don't just do a piece for the sake of doing a piece. Um, only only do it if there's... So, for example, last year, at this stage of the competition, Forshaw made his comeback, you know, so there was something to properly hang, you, hang your hat on. And, and it was possible that somebody like Archie Gray might play against Barnsley, which in the end he didn't. Sinistera had a, a good game, you know, involved in two goals, scored another. But it was equally looking at the, the disparity of Premier League against League One. So you don't you don't want to... As somebody in my office put it, blow your load on that, you know, hold fire and wait and see how Sinistera does when when it really counts. But it it was almost like the perfect second round tie. It was a comfortable win. There were goals. It was close enough and, you know, messy enough in parts to make a game of it. I thought Barnsley played well. To say that it was Premier League against League One, I thought they, they had a good crack at Leeds. It seemed to me that when Leeds switched on and focused, they were fighting whenever the minds wandered. They got themselves into a bit of trouble um, as they did with conceding the goal and, and then the penalty, but it always felt in hand. And I don't think anything about that game will particularly change the team for Brighton away. Um, if anything, it will probably consolidate in Marsh's mind the fact that the, the starting 11 as it was against Chelsea would be the best team to go with um, down at the Amex as well. But a lot of players played well enough. It kind of reflected well on the squad, I think, made it look strong enough. Um, made it look as if there was depth there, as if there were players who will be of use as the season goes on. And just a steady, as you say, routine progression, which really is all that you want at this stage. It probably says something about the shape of the game, the way it unfolded, the fact that it was that big fight on 67 minutes, which kind of sparked everybody into life, the players, the crowd and everything kind of reacted most of all to that. And Marsh um, mentioned it in his press conference today, which we will come on to, by the way, we will do the, uh, the press conference in part two, but... He said he enjoyed it. They've all got each other's backs. You can kind of tell with Jesse that he he does love a, a little bit of that. And for some of the some do, you of the like of been, him, do you think he'd like to have been in the middle of it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> some of the, the the limited clips you've seen him in playing as well, you can see he likes a bit of that. So, and I thought it was quite interesting that he the way he described it that he's saying about going to a line but almost not over it. So you you stick up for each other and you get in people's faces, but you don't get yourself sent off, which I thought was important in those because he wasn't. I mean, I was at the opposite end of the ground, so. I had no idea what happened at the time. I thought it was maybe one of those occasions where the ref had just thrown a few yellows out because he didn't know either. He was just like, I need to do something here. Just hand a few of these out randomly. But yeah, when you saw it, it was it, there was nothing, there was no no punches thrown, no massive kicks put in. It was just a lot of pushing and shoving. There might have been a little bit of that, that the referee wasn't quite sure. Um, although he did seem to pick out the main protagonists, I thought. And I'm with you. When I first saw it, I thought, hmm, could be some you know repercussions from this. But then when you saw the replay, it was... As I said on Twitter, it was worth the effort. I thought that kind of all in, you know, the, 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 some, some of them you think, oh, it was just pointless, wasn't it? You know, if you're going to do it, at least kind of semi-do it properly. So I'd give that a 7 out of 10. Like somebody said, <laughs> better than handbags, worse than full-blown war, um, or, or lower than full-blown war. It wasn't in, quite in the, the, spectrum. the WWE getting the chairs out no, uh, level. No, not quite. And Marsh talking about the right side of the line. I think even if he had been tempted to run 40 yards to get involved... Then there would have been there would have been problems. I suspect they might get letters mentioning the words failing to control players and fines of ten grand or twenty grand or whatever it is that the FA like to reel in for these things. But he's obviously got a little bit of a reputation for this as Marsh because I was on one of our US podcasts earlier in the week and they were asking me specifically how much does he like tangling with people in the dugout? How much does he like fighting with other head coaches? And and I said, well. Quite a small sample size to go on because he hasn't been here for too many games, but obviously he's had the run-in with Bruno Lage um, and he reckons there was a bit of run-in at Molyneux as well. It wasn't quite as obvious for us there, but it, it certainly was at Ellen Road. And then there was the needle with Tuchel, not on the touchline, but beforehand, you know, the, just the kind of deliberately pointed comment of, well, I think it should be banned. You know, <laughs> which, I mean, and managerial convention says that given that through a season you'll make enough comments that either get misconstrued or taken out of context or that ultimately you'll wish you hadn't said, you know, that was one of those that you quite could quite easily have sidestepped by just saying, well, you know, it's not really my problem, is it? But it, it kind of felt the urge to get that one out there. So, yeah, when he said today, 
I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great, that little <laughs> brawl. Mainly, the point he was trying to make was that the players seem to have each other's back, which is, is definitely important. I just think he likes the combative <laughs> side of it. I think he does. I think that with, with the Tuchel comments as well, you could see that little twinkle in his eye as he made that, because he knew what he was doing mm-hmm. there. It's, it's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, kind of like playing the audience and knowing... Fa- I mean, Tuchel has never struck me as a man of great humour, and even less so after the game on Sunday. And I had visions of him absolutely stewing reading that, thinking... I mean, he didn't He didn't actually have a pop about it. His, his press conference was after Marshes, and he didn't have a go, and he, um, he didn't, didn't pull him up on it. But I can well imagine Tuchel reading that and thinking, what? <laughs> like, you know, you know, like, Jesse Marsh is kind of... He's almost trying to create this kind of summer camp vibe around the squad, make them all happy, and, you know, like, all the reinforcement that he gives them makes them all feel positive and uplifted. You don't get that same vibe from Tuchel, do you? you don't, it doesn't strike you as a particularly happy, fun place, maybe, to work, Chelsea. I think if Tuchel was organising a day out, it's probably going to be boot camp, isn't it? Eight hours of horrific work at a, an army, a, a, an army base somewhere that leaves you just about dead or dying. Whereas you could imagine Marsh taking people to crazy golf or bowling or that sort of thing <laughs> in, in between the hard work, obviously. Um, but I think a little bit softer, softer, which is definitely part of the Marsh routine. It's definitely part of the Marsh strategy and has been from the start is to kind of develop personal relationships with the players to get a little bit closer to them to try and understand them and to empathise with them that was one of the things that was in the the longer piece that we wrote about him this week was the fact that they have a lot of one-to-one conversations they have small group conversations they have obviously full-on team meetings as well but the discussions in them vary so you will have chats about technical and tactical aspects of football you know the development of, of your game but they'll also talk to the players about aspirations and ambitions you know I think speak to them quite honestly about where they see themselves in in five years time and there might well be players in the dressing room who say look in five years time I don't see myself being in Leeds I see myself being at a you know a bigger club or a higher level of competition than than in, in the Premier League but they, they chat as well about life outside of football you know what what do you do away from the game what sort of outlook do you have about life beyond these four walls and before the business beyond the business of training training playing training training playing you know it's very easy, I think, not just in football, but in professional sport to become totally fixated and, and totally immersed in what you're doing day to day. So he's tried, I think, to sort of broaden people's thinking and he's tried to be personable with them. And I do, I, I, as much as we were, you know, supporters were sceptical about him. Some of us in the media were sceptical about Marsh through the last 12 games of, of last season. I never really got the impression that the players were. I never got the impression that the players were doubting to any great extent whether he was good as a coach whether they particularly liked him they seem to have been fairly on board with him from the start I think and I do feel like we're, we're kind of seeing that more and more now and fans will see perhaps poor performances towards the back end of last season and that's when you translate it into well they're not playing for him they're not responding to him but there was obviously a lot more at play than that but anyway back back to the game last night I was going yeah. to say we got the first glimpse of Sinistera just over an hour what did you make of him? Good um, doing exactly what you want a player in his position to do and I think what I liked from him was the fact that he, he is going to obviously fall into this line of, of three behind the, the centre forward. He can play on, on both sides, uh, but obviously in the, the, the way that Marsh sets up, it's quite narrow and, and there isn't a huge amount of width. But I thought even within that, Sinistera looked like he could actually offer you some. Um, he did for the uh, for the penalty. He did for the, the third goal as well. Good work out wide. And a lovely finish for the first goal, which is pretty much exactly what everybody says about him um, from his time at Feyenoord. That's what they liked about him. He had assists in his game. He had goals in his game. The people who know Feyenoord quite well say that over the past couple of seasons, and particularly last season, they were an extremely collective unit. So everything that was done, you know, goal scoring, attacking, everything else was a collective process. And that is true of, of a lot of teams. But, you know, a lot of teams have individual flair there as well. And he was he was pretty much the shining light when it came to individual flair. If you needed something from nothing, Sinistera was the player who was going to do it for Feyenoord. And again, like with pretty much everybody who's moved to Leeds this summer, certainly the, the more established first team players, it was hard to find anybody in Holland who didn't think that Leeds were getting a good player for the money they were paying. And I think it's feeling like a slightly slower burn, slower process with um, Sinistera to get totally up to speed. You know, Aronson and Adams and, and Rocker seem to have just exploded right from the off Sinistera had the injury in pre-season which hasn't helped but I think he's going to be good I think as a replacement for Rafinha he, he might be a good fit 
Feyenoord even tweeted out their support, I think, from their uh, English language account yeah. last night following his goal and his uh, his involvement in the other ones as well. Yeah, he was involved in all three, wasn't he? And exactly what he needed. It, it goes back to that time that, that Sayers scored a hat-trick against Port Vale and I was getting some hassle for not giving him a 10 out of 10 and we've gone through that um, argument and debate many, many times, but I was right. Uh, and it was similar with Sinistera last night that you... You know, it, it is Barnsley and it was Barnsley's side with a few changes. Barnsley's side who, had, who I did think played well. I don't know about you. I thought they had Me. something. I thought they had something about them. I thought they had a crack and they they had a go. And they, they made it difficult for Leeds in certain periods. I just think that right from the start, you felt like it was going to be a home win, wasn't it? And it was going to be comfortable and there would be maybe niggly moments or difficult moments, but it would be it would be okay. So the bigger question for Sinistera, I don't think he'll start at Brighton at the weekend. But if he gets a good run against Brighton or if something happens that means he does have to start, what happens in that game? Because that is, that's a benchmark, really, isn't it? Barnsley at home in the League Cup isn't. But I still think you could see in his game a, a definite player. And it was Rennie Maric who did the press afterwards, uh, Marsh's assistant. And he was, he was very complimentary about Sinistera. said he thinks he's got a lot of scope to grow and improve and already thinks they've got their hands on a, a really good winger. So promise him. As for Barnsley, I thought... I thought- they caused us problems at moments, but like you, I was I thought as soon as we figure out how to get past their high press, because they were sat they had three players really high on our defence, didn't they, at all times for that first fifteen minutes or so. But we managed to figure out how to get round them and started passing through them. And as soon as we got that kind of uh got into our stride with that really, I guess is what I'm yeah. trying to say, then then it only ever looked like it was gonna go one way. They couldn't live with it. Leeds were a bit dozy in time at times. You could see Marsh initially getting annoyed at the number of times they were losing the ball in midfield and I think he just felt that with a bit more care and a bit more attention they'd be fine which they were and hence, that's hence why he put Rocker on as well yeah um, it, the, the subs were quite interesting um, taking risks with players that didn't really need to be risked but then maybe it's to Rodrigo's advantage to get another 20 minutes in his legs um, maybe it'll help Rocker physically because uh, the, the Premier League is different physically to the Bundesliga there's not an awful lot of doubt about that uh, so perhaps it was calculated, perhaps it makes sense. There didn't seem to be any problems for anybody at the end of it. And 45 minutes for Liam Cooper, which I think brings him properly back into the reckoning. But quite interesting to think that actually he's going to have quite a job knocking Koch and Llorente out of those positions if they're playing anything like they did against Chelsea. What did you make of Somerville? And where do you think he sits now? Because he's he's in an oversubscribed position, it seems. Yeah, and yeah, oversubscribed is the word. They have a lot of options there. and if. James is involved. Harrison at the moment just looks like a, a certain pick. Sinistera comes on strong. It's going to be tricky, I think, for Somerville to get a huge number of minutes. And there was a discussion through the summer when they were talking about extending Somerville's contract, which they did, uh, from his side, you know, about whether or not he might be allowed to go on loan and whether he might be able to get more games elsewhere. And Leeds didn't want to do that because they felt that he was close enough to offer them something this season and to be involved this season. But it's a fair question that how exactly he's going to fit and, and how much he's going to play because there is the, the lot to choose from in that area. You can see the sense in sending him on loan, can't you? But you can also see the sense in retaining him because the squad, while it has been fleshed out, is not huge. He's probably one of those that falls into a properly grey area where you could make the argument for him to go, but you could also make the argument for him to stay. But you could see how in either situation, the Leeds could easily send him out and wish that they hadn't but could easily retain him and, and feel like he hasn't played enough and, and he could have got games elsewhere. It's different with other players. You know, like Lewis Bate, for example, he is not going to play this season or not much. So it's far better for him to be at Oxford or somewhere like that. I think Charlie Creswell was another who, you know, it was, it was a big call, that one. But then if Laurent, if Llorente's playing well, if Cooper's in decent form, if, if Koch's coming on strong, which he seems to be, um, seems to be finding his groove, then... How much does Creswell play this season and actually does it do him more good to be away getting a bundle of games somewhere like Millwall? I think it, it potentially does. So it it is it can be a, a pretty hard balance. And I feel like looking at the squad, it seems to me quite obvious the players who are going to be involved, the players who are going to get enough minutes even though they don't get, you know, the, a huge amount. But some of them might be one of those that kind of falls betwixt and between. One of the other young players who has a lot of attention on him, Gal Hart. Little bit of an underwhelming, sloppy performance last night, but great work for that third goal to win the ball back, wasn't it? Yeah, fantastic tackle, and then the quality from Sinistera just to take advantage of a position where you you want a wide player to to see instantly what's going on and to spot the gaps and and to um to to get himself in there to to put the ball in the middle for Cleek. 
it was a strange night for Gil Hart. He didn't seem to be on it. You know, his touch and his um, his reading of the game and his distribution and everything else, it wasn't quite there. I don't know whether he'll have been feeling an element of pressure to be particularly good on the night because he will, you know, he will, he'll be banging on the door in the way that Somerville is, but I think he might well have higher expectations and more minutes this season than Somerville does. But he's going to have to play well and he's going to have to play well particularly because at the moment, Rodrigo is looking like the nine in this team. And I think even if Bamford is back, and I thought reading between the lines today, it sounds like Bamford won't be involved at Brighton, but we'll see. Even if Bamford is back, I don't think he comes straight into the team, even if he's fully fit. I think at the moment you you got to pin your colours to a forward who's scored four in three games and, and looks to be full of life. So that does kind of skew the argument slightly, doesn't it, from what we've been saying all the way through the summer of it seems to be Bamford v Gelhart for the position up front, probably Bamford and what happens if they're both injured, saying actually, as it is at the moment, Bamford and Gelhart are probably both behind Rodrigo. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benji Lignardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week, the biggest last-minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Woof. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with Databeta Duncan Alexander and this week, analysis from Karl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me to search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We got through that whole first section there without even mentioning Mateus Click, so we should give him a quick word yeah. um, before we dive into the press conference response because uh, he was good last night, wasn't he? Some lovely little moments, just clicky being clicky. Yeah, which is when he's at his best, when he's just doing his thing, scoring penalties like that. I thought the third goal was beautifully nonchalant as well. Just kind of, kind of caressed it in, didn't he? As if he'd, he'd been scoring those all night. That seems to have settled itself. Um, permanently I think there has been the discussion previous weeks about will Click go will he stay does he have a role and Marsh hinted today at his press conference that yeah that had you know very much been under discussion in, in the context of why the transfer plans what's going to happen with Click you know if there's a good loan offer for him and he leaves and it frees up wages although he's not on a, a massive salary but you know that, that can change things and, and can change your financial clout when it comes to signing other players but Really, since the Wolves game, when he came off the bench, changed the game, and all of us sat there thinking, you've got to keep this guy, you know, that makes no sense at all. To However much he's going to be used, it makes absolutely no sense to weaken the squad by losing somebody who can be influential and can be influential at the drop of a hat. Uh, keep him, you know, keep him in the squad. And, you know, Marsh made it clear today that, as he put it, the air's been cleared. They have agreed on what Cleek's role is likely to be. Cleek's happy with that. He thinks it's enough to, to keep him in the running for the World Cup with Poland. Later in the year, Marsh has seen now more than once the way in which he can influence matches. It's just total, total common sense. And we'll turn our attention to Marsh and the press conference in just a sec. Worth saying at this point, you were on the Athletics Football Podcast um, with Chappers as well this week, weren't you? So go across and listen to that. Talking about like, the, the the American influence at Ellen Road. Yes, yeah, I've been playing away this week. Every now and again, Chappers has to slum it and get me get me on board um, for, the, for the footy potty. Uh, I've also been chatting to our American guys over in the States for a separate podcast as well, both of them looking at the American influence. And it, it has been nice to be able to chat on these 
particular podcast about the sort of positive reception that the American influence is getting. So the fact that Marsh and Anson and Adams and, and the American link there and, and involvement is being seen in a positive light as opposed to the conversation that was going on when they first came in. You know, that awful thing about do Americans understand football, which as, as Chappers was saying on the Athletics Other Potty, you just could not apply that sweeping brushstroke to any other group. You couldn't apply it to an ethnic group, a religious group. Um, a lot of nationalities you can do that with. Um, but for some reason with Americans, it's kind of open season where you can say, these people really get it, you know, as if, as if that's um, in any way appropriate. So I think I think it's a good thing. You know, we were talking on Monday about, you know, moving on from one era to the next at Leeds. I think it's a good thing as well that people are starting to talk about that and, and Marsh's involvement, the involvement of Adams and, and Anderson in a in a productive way, as opposed to being sceptical about it. It's remarkable the sort of uptick we've seen, just like interactions and things like that from people in the States who have just, Sunday's game has just opened their eyes to Leeds United's place in the Premier League. And obviously we've got the the American trio there. And, uh, and Pulisic was apparently there as well on, on Sunday. Uh, Marsh was actually asked, wasn't he, today, is it reasonable to expect that we'll see more football like Sunday, which I thought was an interesting answer. Yeah, he kind of said, it was kind of yes and no, wasn't it? I think what he was wanting to say was, it's probably not a great idea and it's probably not particularly helpful if people en masse are sitting saying, can't wait for that every week. Um, because he was making the point that while it was planned and while it was intentional and while the tactics work, you do definitely have days where everything just falls into place and that felt like one of them. I think it would be unfair not to say that it felt like that was... That was achieved through a summer of coaching and a summer of, I think, pretty good transfer business or like intelligent, sensible transfer business. And that that is what they've been been aiming for. But as he said, it's not going to click like that every week. It definitely isn't. And he, he did not want to get drawn in particularly to the question of what should expectation look like this season? You know, what, what should people reasonably expect of this team? I think he sounded like he'd be happy to take a view on that, you know, 10 games in a couple of months in when he gets a proper feel for how they've settled but it isn't only three matches um, gone so far and he was talking about the Chelsea game saying he said to the players afterwards just shut the door on that one because it's not going to make any difference to um, the Brighton game on Saturday I don't think that's strictly true because there must be a big shot of confidence going through everybody after that on Sunday and I don't see how that doesn't help down at Brighton but he's right to say that they're not going to get the same game. It's not going to be the same game. It's not going to be against the same players. I think there are ways in which Brighton will play better on Saturday than Chelsea did on Sunday. So yeah, he, he seems to have his head screwed on. I think for the way the crowd react as well at this stage, it's important because it's a it's such a big win in the bank. Because for example, in the Southampton game, an hour in, you were thinking, oh, these tactics are great. This is this is going to work this season. Then at full time, you were thinking, hmm, okay, maybe there's maybe there's not. It's not a finished product just yet. Imagine how different it might have felt um, against Barnsley on Wednesday had we lost to Chelsea, which everyone, let's be fair, we all expected to lose that game just because of the way that the Premier League is now with the disparity between the haves and the and the have-nots. Had we perhaps not beaten Wolves as well on top of that, if that had gone the other way or we'd even drawn and we were still looking for our first win of the season, there might have been a little bit of anxiety in the air last night um, at Ellen Road. But as it was, it, it just felt like a... A nice pleasant evening out. Oh, lovely sunset. It's nice and warm. I'm sat here in my t-shirt. But it's a routine League Cup win. It, it, and it goes to show, doesn't it, that momentum really is everything in both yeah. di- in both directions in football. If you're on a losing streak, it's hard to get out of it. If you're on a winning streak, it just seems to carry forward and your luck seems to fall for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, obviously I follow Scottish football and the, and the reality is that Hibs should be on one point at the moment and they're not. They've got about five. Um, but... <laughs> I fully expect that to catch up with them. Is that, and, is that your you know, unbiased opinion, Phil? A hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, natural order will be restored before long. With Leeds, yeah, they could have drawn against Wolves, but they deserve to win that. They drew against Southampton, but they probably shouldn't have done. Should have won that game. Chelsea felt like there'd been a bit of learning done between Southampton and, and the weekend. The game management was so much better. The, the weird thing about the Southampton game was that for an hour. The game management was really good. Um, it wasn't just a good performance, but it was like properly measured in the way that an away side should play in that sort of game. It was ambitious enough, but they, they weren't overcommitting. They were just being sensible with their tactics. But coming around to Chelsea, it, it, there just was the, the common sense about when to make changes, about how to when to attack, when to fall back, when to let Chelsea have a little bit of the ball. It was not far off, I didn't think, a perfect performance, as perfect a performance as you're likely to get against a team against uh, a team like Chelsea. 
And you're right, it does give the League Cup a totally different perspective because people go and enjoy it. You know, people go and enjoy it. And had Leeds had a bad start but won that game on Wednesday night, it would have been... It, it would have been kind of like jeopardy free because of the game that it was and because of the competition that it was but even a 3-1 win and a good win and, and good goals and so on wouldn't have made anybody feel significantly better the thought straight away would have been yeah but we really need the result down at Brighton and this is good momentum and yeah but they've been quite clear really Kinnear was saying in his programme notes last night that they do really want a cup run that they haven't had anything like a cup run um, since Radrazani bought in as owner and, and Kinnear and, and Otter joined the club as well so you know, it's. I, it made me laugh that uh, Marsh was asked about the Wolves draw today um, away at Wolves in the next round of the League Cup and just said, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so, well, at least you agree with the rest of us. I mean, take City and Chelsea out of that draw last night and it was absolutely horrific. But, I mean, hardly a game you want to watch in it, I don't think. But, but a lot of all Premier League ties. So actually, yes, it does clear the that, light around somewhat, doesn't that, it? That is definitely a factor and this would be a good round to get through. And uh, no, I haven't seen that game on the first day of the season first weekend of the season um, it's a winnable tie for Leeds and I get the sense that Marsh will probably go stronger in that than he did last night We haven't forgotten about transfers by the way we'll deal with them in due course it probably warrants a little bit more time because we we've, we've feel like we've got a little bit more data poured into the data set in terms of Marsh's comments today in the presser Meanwhile he was talking uh, about managing training because that's the interesting thing about the Premier League you get so few midweek games and we've spoken before about the awful dreadful sense of doom and dread when um, you see the the championship, the AFL midweek fixtures just seem to be on all the time, and you go that that's that's the alternative reality that we somehow managed to to avoid on the final day of the season. However, we do get them every now and then. We've got one this next week um, against Everton, which we'll speak about. We'll preview that on Monday's podcast. However, the midweek game, the cup game, does impact what they do. Marsh was saying today. Yes, his training definitely differs from Bielsa's, and that was always going to be the case. And the I've written about this a few times, but there's been this switch from the concentration on distance covered, which was a massive part of Bielsa's training week, you know, hitting targets, um, getting enough miles in the legs. That whole thing about if you don't go far enough in motherball, you don't play at the weekend and everybody always did. You know, people were really good and players were, were full of the, the stamina that they needed to, to hit those targets. Marsh, and he was touching on this today, has done far more work on high intensity sprints. So the shot, bursts of acceleration that let you press and counter press and everything else and he was making the point that when it comes to distance covered and obviously they ran outran Chelsea co- uh, comfortably at the weekend but when it comes to distance covered sometimes it will fluctuate for Leeds sometimes they'll do incredibly high distances sometimes they'll fall back a bit but he said there's very little deviation from the data he's seen so far in the number of high intensity sprints um, short distance runs that, that they make and you can you know it, it's it doesn't take any amount of football knowledge, I don't think, to be able to see why that's important to this team. You can see that that is you know, absolutely fundamental to what they're trying to do when it comes to retaining the ball, winning the ball, um, counter-pressing after they lose it. He needs them to be good at that and he needs the bodies to be able to stand up to it. Um, so they will have to adapt. He likes very much to lower the intensity two days before a game. So Thursday is quite often, you know, match day minus two is quite often the day when it all eases off and when they can spend time focusing purely sometimes on set pieces um, as opposed to doing hardcore training sessions and um, like open training sessions. But again, it, it just it does just feel a little bit to me like it's starting to fall into place more and more. Did you see um, Sean Wright Phillips' comments? I think it might have been um, relayed through the American media about pre-season under Marsh and how there's a lot of focus on rondos and, and rondos are basically small numbered possession games out there where one set of players has to win it off another set of players. And it's all about quick interchanges of passes and that's very much a hallmark of of what Jesse Marsh does with his teams isn't it that that compact space in the middle and I think did you see evidence of it against Barnsley actually on Wednesday of the those little interchanges of, of playing really tight areas yeah and also in the Chelsea game it's the speed of thought I think that encourages one of our um, tactics writers Ahmed Walid um, was writing about Brendan Aronson earlier this week and one of the things that he was focusing on that um, that Ahmed was focusing on was the speed at which you have to think and you have to react in the system that Marsh is trying to play, a lot of this is based on the the idea that when you win the ball, retain possession, regain possession, whatever it is, in a matter of seconds, you should be looking to to have a shot on goal. So Leeds are a direct team without, and if you look at the stats at the moment, they move the ball 
um, for the forward faster than anybody bar Fulham. But to look at Fulham's tactics, Fulham tend to be quite route one, you know, tend to be quite long ball. Whereas Leeds are direct without being like that. They just like to move the ball forward very, very quickly. Go for vertical passes, as, as people would call them. So in order to do that, and in order to make the transition from winning the ball to shot and goal, your thought process has to be really quick. So those kind of training routines help with that. You know, help you to, you know, one-touch passing, quick passing, moving, knowing where you are, good control of the ball, um, good understanding of what to do next. And yeah, it's, it's there in the football, definitely. And a bit more clarity on the backroom team as well in today's press conference. Uh, we've learned that Cameron Toshak is doing a little bit more individual work with players. Yeah, again, that was in a piece this week. He's um, he's responsible for the one-on-one stuff, which ranges from, as I was saying, technical, tactical chats to, you know, kind of more aspirational stuff and, and lifestyle chats as well. And then you have Matt Jackson, who's doing set pieces, among other jobs. Um, you've got Rennie Maric, who I've got to say at 29 was incredibly impressive as a talker last night um, coming in and doing that press conference. You can't really believe his his age. He's kind of the equivalent at coaching level of Archie Gray almost making his debut before he's um, finished taking his GCSEs. But he he's very, very analytical, uh, Rennie Maric. His background was before he became a coach or, or while he was becoming a coach at, at a sort of amateur level was about analytical writing. You know, he loved doing an analytical writing for a German website. Really, really in-depth pieces on individual games, on teams, you know, very, very insightful. So he focuses a lot on that side of it. And then you have Marsh who who oversees the whole thing, but it is quite a wide team. Yeah, now with split of responsibilities. And tough conversations with um, Cody Drame. Um, where does he fit into this, Michael? Where does he fit at Leeds when Luke Ayling comes back? Probably third choice which is a bit of a shame for him because I think he's he showed on on loan last year that he's he's good enough to be a starting footballer at this stage of his career but I thought he had a few shaky moments yesterday that would I know I know, I know admittedly um, Rasmus is not the finest start but I didn't I didn't think he saw we saw anything of him yesterday that would suggest he's going to push either of them out of their place no they'll commit to Christensen they've got Ailing coming back uh, him and Philpool due to train full training next week, so so can't be too far away now. But you have to remember with Ailing that he's into the last year of his contract now and that there's been no move yet to extend that. It, you have to wonder if this is kind of, you know, the, the, the tail end for, for Ailing and, and if it is coming to a conclusion for him and if he will be elsewhere by the start of next season. And, and if he is, then clearly the, the kind of fight of three people for one place, a right back becomes, you know, two for one place, Christensen and, and Drami. But I'm with Michael. I haven't. I I watched Drammy at Cardiff last season, and I was impressed with him. I, I did think he coped really well there, considering that that was just launched, you know, launched straight into the championship, and really did really did land running. He didn't have a didn't have any problem there at all. But it's a different level. This and it is it is more difficult. And I'm not sure whether or not um, he's a long term option for Leeds. But we'll see. Did you see slash hear uh, the comments? I think it was Marsh talking about how Christensen had found the adjustment to the Premier League. And he was saying in Austria, he was used to influencing a game maybe nine or ten times. And he's found since coming into the Premier League, it's maybe two or three times a push. And that's maybe why that step up has been that little bit more difficult. As in, he's sort of implying that he's almost trying to to do too many things and maybe force things. Yeah. Because I found it really interesting. Did you spot this um, against Chelsea? There was a point late on, and I can't remember if I mentioned this on one of the pods, or if it's just a float, uh, thought floating around in my head, where Christensen could have gone on the overlap for a, for a give and go mm. quite late on in the game. Might have been 2-0 at that point and didn't, and stopped, and checked back, and I thought, ah, maybe there, someone's just had a word with him just to say, don't try and force it. Yeah, good good game management again. I think what Marshall was trying to say, or, or it seemed to me, one of the points he was trying to make, was that he hasn't started particularly well, Christensen, and, and we can all see that. But I think Marshall's point was that it, it's far more difficult to influence a Premier League game, or to be seen to influence a Premier League game, than it is in Austria. And that was always going to be the question mark over Aronson as well, but, but Christensen clearly was how would they cope with the switch from a decent European league, but not a, a really top-level European league, to probably the most competitive one going? That was always going to be difficult for them. Aronson's made it look like a pretty easy switch. He hasn't found that difficult at all. It's been harder for Christensen. I think, in fairness to Christensen, the way this team's set up and and the design of it means that he and Strike on the left-hand side are always likely to come under pressure, always likely to... Um, always likely to be at risk there because of the way that, that leads open up in front of them. But 
There have been times where I've been a little bit confused by Christensen's positioning. can easily, easily get sucked very central to the point where you almost feel like he's positioned as a centre-back as opposed to managing the wing out wide. And, and it has been a problem. It, it was more briefly, but you know, certainly initially it was a problem against Chelsea. Leeds were lucky to get away with that um, Raheem Sterling chance right at the very beginning of the game. And that was the same thing. The, the positioning and, and the understanding on that side of the field just wasn't there. So Sterling was able to to open them up. I feel as if Christensen will come good. I think he's going to need time and he's going to need to settle. And perhaps it does just need somebody saying to him, be realistic about what you can do. You know, in, in your position, you might have visions of bombing up and down and providing assists and cross after cross after cross, but it's not the championship. You know, it's not Leeds as they were. When Leeds were, were flying under Bielsa in the championship, they, you had times where they just seemed to be constantly at the side of the opposition box, swinging the ball in. You know, they're just so dominant and, and so on top. It is different in this league. It's not as easy. Um, and I think he, he will have found that the transition has asked quite a lot of him. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One week of the transfer window left then, Phil. Are Leeds going to move for a forward, do you think? Because we've had a little update on Patrick Bamford insofar as to say that we're not quite sure when he's going to be back now. Um, so that leaves us with Joe Gellhart up front and the sort of the, the common thought, the thread that seems to be running through a lot of, of media coverage is if they just add that one more forward, if they just add that one more forward, do you think they're going to they're gonna do anything? Because we've had comments from Marsh, maybe, different comments from Angus Kinnear in his programme notes. Where are we with this, do you think? I do wonder if they will. If right at the end, they'll think to themselves, maybe this is just a, a good idea. But they're not committing to anything at this stage. And you're getting from Kinnear the line of, you know, it's it's difficult, it's becoming challenging, I think was the word he used to find what we want, but there is money available and it, it can be done if the right players come up. So he's, you know, he's been talking about dominoes, Marsh talking today about, you know, things changing elsewhere, stuff moving, which I think implies that if deals start to fall at other clubs um, and start to go through at other clubs, then perhaps people who they really like become available and... and can be done but there's always that you know there's always that line isn't there of it's got to be the right person and we've got to find we've got to find who it is that we that we really need so I think it's one of those where my head is kind of saying putting all the pieces together it won't surprise me at all if we go through the deadline without a striker coming in and I suppose that playing like that against Chelsea last weekend if they get another good result against Brighton at the weekend the inclination to spend money is probably less and less, isn't it? And the, the inclination to believe in the squad is probably more and more. We're kind of going over old ground by saying what we think because we've been saying it all summer. And, you know, the 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 gap is there, I feel, more than more than anything, because I don't think anybody can say categorically how much football Bamford's going to play this season. He might play plenty and he might, return from this niggle and be fine and, and get on a roll and, and of course there is that really long break from November to Boxing Day because of the World Cup when Bamford will be at the World Cup well you you would imagine not at, at this rate you I think there are plenty cynic Michael uh, I think there are plenty of others at Leeds who might well go to the World Cup but I think it's asking a lot for him so what you really need to handle at this stage is this initial run isn't it to the beginning of November that's what you've got to take care of because by the time you get back to business um, on Boxing Day. Um, you're pretty much at the January window. Although, let's not pin too much to that because we've seen in the past how difficult January windows seem to be for Leeds and, and how you know how much angst they can cause as well. But say, for example, it doesn't go well on 
Saturday at Brighton and say, for example, they come home and the conversation is about, let's say Bamford isn't involved in that game. When is he going to be back? What sort of condition is he going to be in? When is he going to be at full tilt? I do think that they should be back in Gilhart heavily, but Wednesday night did suggest to you that, you know, you need to, you need to be sort of careful in the way that you handle him. You can't just launch him in and say, right, you get on with it and play loads of games. He is young, he's massively talented, but he, he hasn't got a huge amount of football behind him. To go back to the word I've used before, it seems to me like insurance. Um, and I don't think that necessarily means that you have to spend a massive amount of money. But I I hear enough in Marsh's comments to make me think that he would like another one before the window closes. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I feel like all summer we've been saying we need another striker, just go out and buy a striker. And then this week we were linked with Huang for 20 million and everyone went, not him. <laughs> not him, not him, not for but, that much. But, that, but that's the point, isn't it? The, the worst thing you can do is just, you know, sign anybody, um, anyone. We were joking before we came on air about the Man United podcast, Webby and O'Neill. And the line in that where they were so angry after the, I was going to say the Brighton game, it wasn't the Brighton game, it was the Brentford game, mm. where one of them was saying, I just want to see a player thrown out of the club, <laughs> just just throw somebody out of the club so that we can have the satisfaction of seeing somebody getting bombed out. And you know, you, you've, you've desperately got to avoid getting sucked into that mindset when it comes to signing players as well. But that doesn't mean that there aren't good players out there. The money thing is interesting because clearly, having spoken to Randrazani, he said on record, we were ready to pay... 40 million euros for Charles de Kettler from Club Bruges, which is the equivalent of 33, 34 million pounds. Marsh was saying today, we don't just have surplus cash washing about. That means that we can go out and do massive deals all over the place, which, you know, obviously people will instantly look at that and say, well, that doesn't add up. I mean, how, you know, how's that? I think what it tells you is that they were up all night to spend 33 million pounds on de Kettler but not up all night to spend £33 million per se, if you know what I mean. Like It, it wasn't a case of this money's burning a hole in our pocket, we need to spend it. It was a case of if we can get the Kettler, we will find the cash to do it. So I very much doubt there's £33 million washing about in the accounts at Ellen Road. It, that sort of money comes from shareholder investment more often than not, as it has in the, the past two seasons, or it comes from selling somebody, you know, raising money um, elsewhere through through other means. But, if you take Marsh at his word, what he seems to be saying is if the players who we've identified and have spoken about and who we'd really like are there to be had at the end of the window, then we uh, we will do it. I mean, that that seems to be what he's saying to me. Is that, does it essentially boil down to an investment strategy then in that they were thinking we'll, we'll spend the big money this summer, but then two, three years down the line with the age years, the ability we think he's got, we see him as being someone we can sell for £80 million in a few years. The piece I've written on transfers this week I think it's going to run Saturday, is about the fact that Leeds have become and, and have modelled themselves as a bit of a stepping stone club, yeah? So in the case of somebody like De Kettler, De Kettler has big dreams about where he wants to play. He seems himself, sees himself as a top-level player. So obviously that didn't work because AC Milan came in, AC Milan are Serie A champions. It was you know much more high-profile move. But in order to say to De Kettler, come and play for us, you might have to feasibly convince him by suggesting that it's beneficial to come to the club for two, three, four, five years, develop your reputation, develop your name, grow as a player, and then you will get that really, really big move that you want. And Leeds seem quite open to the the reality of the fact that in doing that, they might land some really good players who might otherwise not be interested. You know, if they were thinking, am I going to get stuck at Ellen Road? And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but if you think of yourself as a Champions League winner or a Premier League winner, you know, big, big top level elite footballer, there's a certain level of club that you don't want to, to be at, that you don't want to get stuck at. And you can see from Rafinha and you can see from Phillips and, and I actually think, you know, Aronson, Sinistera potentially as well, players who will appreciate in value. I do think that is a large part of what the transfer strategy is. And that was the case with De Kettler, was thinking that, yes, 33, 34 million pounds is a big shell out now. But if he's as good as we confidently think he is, then in two or three years, he might be worth vastly more than that. And and he might be a, an avenue to to you know some serious income, really big transfer fee. Like for example, who's going to replace now uh, Rafinha and Phillips as the avenue to big money? It's Melier, isn't it? Mm. Melier is the next one. He is the one who's whose value. I, I mean, Harrison's value actually is going through the roof as well. But Melier is really young, and Melier is the one who, if he carries on the way he's going, is suddenly going to become of interest to clubs at a really really high level. It's inevitable. 
Just a couple of things to kind of throw back at you there from what you've said, Phil. And I, I'm going back to when I spoke to Angus Kinnear on the Square Ball podcast, interviewed him just ahead of the season start. And you were saying there maybe that, that results might influence the thinking. I put that to Angus Kinnear though, suggested that the club maybe was sometimes too reactive um, when it comes to their transfer strategy and, and, and he denied that. I also put to him as well the idea that we don't have to always play money ball. Is, is that the case? And he said, no, if we've got the right player, you know, of the right age. Because what you're saying there is buying players with potential, that indicates a certain age bracket as well. So it feels like we're always going to have quite a young squad. But when it comes to putting a player in there, can they not look at signing a 25, 26-year-old who might not ask, um, you know, acquire a greater value in any great space of time that, and you could then sell on? You know, sometimes maybe you've just got to tend to what you need to do here and now. Well, they have done with Rocker. I mean, Rocker kind of falls into that bracket. Christensen is 25 as well, although... I sort of think of him as a bit younger and and a, a bit you know not so far along the the development curve, and I don't think either of them look, seem to you like old twenty five year olds. You know they don't seem like they've they've been at it from the sort of age that that Archie Gray is is breaking through at. But if you look at the the if you look at the spread of players who've come in since they've been promoted, I don't think they've signed any outfield player over the age of twenty nine. You know they they have not at any stage said to themselves, you know let's just get this really hardened, proven centre-back or let's get this hardened, proven centre-forward. It's just not the way that they're doing things and it does seem to lean heavily towards the option and the possibility. Not unlike what they used to do at Sevilla and it's worth, as I sort of said in this piece, it's worth remembering that Alter cut his teeth on the monkey at Sevilla and, and that is what Sevilla do. You know, it's that thing of buy low, sell high and it, I mean, blame me, it works for them. It doesn't work for everybody, it has to be said, but it does work for them. Like they 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 win trophies in Europe all the time despite the way that they that they manage the squad and, and the transfer business but that seems to me it leads the way that they are looking at it more and more you know who's worth buying that will be good for us now but who further down the line might bring in you know a, a hefty whack of cash and Radrazan is pretty open about that actually when we when we chatted to him saying it's a phase the club are going through and it won't necessarily always be like this but until we develop commercial revenue to a level where we can seriously compete with, you know, not realistically your biggest clubs because their wealth is, is astronomical, but where we can reasonably compete with most teams in the Premier League, then your powers of retention become much stronger. Um, and I do get that. I do get that. I think it's just that if you if you sell Phillips and Adams comes in and Adams looks really good, you suddenly look at Phillips and think, that was quite a nice little earner, that in the end. As sad as it was to lose him and as, as good as he was. And if you sell Rafinha and you sign Sinister or you sign Aronson and the team works and it clicks and, it, and it's effective, there's a, there's a train of thought which could say, well, do you need uh, Rafinha for the system that Marsh plays given how narrow it is beyond the, the midfield? If it doesn't work, if none of it works, then you look at those sales and say, well, you lost your two best players and the players that you signed in return weren't good enough. You know, it, it didn't fall into place. So it, you know, it's there to be judged 100%. Yeah, I can understand the, I guess the model and the, the logic and the reasoning behind it, but it does fly somewhat in the face of Victor Orta telling us we've got two and three people lined up for every position. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like they're almost going on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, and I, I often sort of thought to myself that, you know, the idea of having three people on a list, they might fit, they might technically fit, they might be you know perfect in their skill set for what you want, but what are they going to cost and, and how easy are they to get out of certain clubs and, and everything else? I mean, Huang, as a, as an example, Marsh knows him inside out, he's worked with him twice, he's a player who I definitely think he would take, you know, in the right circumstances, but how much would you pay for Huang? You know, even if his skill set is kind of ideal or is, is pretty close, if, I mean, I don't know about you, but looking at the market, there have been some big fees this summer there really have been some big fees but way above what I thought certain players would cost so if Will said well you can have Huang but he's 20 million or he's 25 million do you do it? do you not? Well, I don't know difficult call um, but I'm not suggesting that he is the only striker out there because plainly he isn't do you think there's real interest in him? I, I think Marsh would have him yeah I think he would I think he would um, but what Wills would actually be willing to do with him is another question altogether I think for example if Will said look ping him out on loan with an obligation. It's probably exactly the sort of player where Marsh would say, yeah, that could work for us. That that could be quite good. Do we know if he's recovered from his injury that he picked up at Ellen Road? You mean, has he had an eye transplant? <laughs> it looked pretty bad I, from I his think, reaction. I think it was just an eyelash transplant. Was it an eye, yeah. eye, eyelash? Yeah, yeah, they can be nasty though, they can be. 
Um, perhaps Marsh might have to um, fess up as well in saying what he actually what he did actually say to Huang. I don't know if um, Laj has replied to his his email yet. But as I say, I, in terms of being reactive, the time when you're more likely to be, I think, is when you're right at the very end of the window and you have to almost put up or shut up, don't you? Say it goes badly wrong at Brighton, it's a bad day, whatever else. That's that's almost, it's the game to come after that, true, but that's almost your last chance to decide, are we doing it, are we not? When you're at the beginning of August or when you're mid-July, you can say to yourself, let's just, you know, let's just wait and see, let's just wait and see, let's just wait and see. But if they're not doing a striker next week, they're not doing a striker, you know, because the window will will close. So, let's see. And to Brighton then, Phil. Good team. Tough one, isn't it, this one? Yes. They've started well. They've been getting more and more stable under Potter, who is inevitably going to get a bigger job eventually, I think. But it seems, I know he was having a dig at the Brighton fans last last season, but it seems pretty happy there. It seems to work for him. It seems to be quite a quite a nice fit. I think it will be a harder game than Chelsea because I think, although Brighton don't go heavily in for possession, they don't worry too much about dominating possession. I think they'll control the ball and they'll use the possession they have in midfield better than Chelsea did against Leeds on Sunday. And I think because of that, Welbeck will be much more of a handful for the two centre-backs and, and also with his, his kind of drifting runs out wide than Sterling was um, over 90 minutes. A really, really good test this. Because Marshall was saying he didn't want to call Chelsea a benchmark because by doing that, you're almost saying this is how we should be performing every week, which is a, a lot to ask. But it does kind of elevate your expectation of who Leeds should realistically be competing with, who they might be able to to beat. Um, I think naturally delighted, obviously, to to beat Chelsea. But I think if they went away away to Brighton and won that game, I think they'd be happier again. I thought we were all right at home against Brighton. Um, and that was when we started to see Marsh Ball perhaps working a little better than it had in the in the games before that. I mean, I suppose, you, mean, you mean in the last home game? Yeah. Last I, season? I thought we were okay. I thought, I thought they were incredibly lucky to get out of that with a point. Yeah, but we, I thought we were broadly speaking okay in that game. If you're taking the stress away from it, it was quite an even game, I thought. Yeah. I, I thought... You I, don't sound convinced. I though. thought Brighton had leads exactly where they wanted them and if Welbeck had headed in that late chance, it was cut and stroke... God, I'd forgotten r- about that. Stroke riot. <laughs> That's true. But, yeah. yeah. But that, that aside, that aside, it was absolutely fine. But apart from all um, the bad things, Phil, yeah. just concentrate on the good things. Yeah, but it's not a fair gauge, that, because Marsh often talks about stress and the stress at that point was just utterly extreme um, on Leeds. So, you know, Brighton were able to come play with total freedom Leeds were able to play with next to no freedom at all. Um, maybe, so, maybe I've just polluted my memory of it with the, the joy of um, Brentford afterwards. It was well, probably the joy right. of the strike head on, though. It was probably right on a knife edge, though. Of it could have turned. Probably could have yeah, done that. The, yeah, I was going to say the stakes were so high, and that was obviously yeah. the sack. We got the sack the board chance. Gives me the shivers even just thinking about it. Partly because <laughs> the goal was so great, but also just that sinking feeling. You know, th- th- the last ten minutes of this is going to go off in such a big way. People had just completely lost patience by that point, quite understandably. But Leeds have had a good summer. Brighton seem pretty happy with how things are shaping up down there. They are a, they are a good team, but I think they'll be looking at Leeds and thinking Leeds are a good team as well. Are Difficult Bright- to call this. I, I think it's got draw written all over it, don't you? Are Brighton the, the obvious example of how difficult it is to sign a striker? Because it feels like they've needed one for several years now and, and have not managed it. I think Welbeck's a good player. I, I think his reputation wasn't helped by the, the couple of moves that didn't go didn't go well for him. But I'm not sure that either of them were timed at a point where the clubs he was going to were, were necessarily going to help him massively. What I've seen of him so far this season, he looks like hard work um, and he looks good and he looks in, in decent form. So I think they'll be okay with him up front. Spoke in the run-up to Chelsea about um, the Chelsea game being a benchmark of how far we'd come since the game at the end of last season. Yeah. It always felt like Potter and Brighton had Bielsa's number when it came to the, the the clash of styles, if you like. It'll be an interesting benchmark to see how things have evolved under Marsh, how we uh, acquit ourselves against this this Brighton system, which won't have fundamentally changed in any great sense, will it? It'll be um, it'll be what Bielsa faced, perhaps with a slight tweak to the personnel, to see if we have come a lot further. The the signs from the Chelsea game are that we really have. This will this is why this is an interesting test, isn't it? Because yeah. We're up against another club that kind of had our number in recent years. Have we improved to the extent where we can overcome them? Yeah, it was a shaky night down at Brighton last season. It was one of the games that I thought was an indicator for the fact that things just weren't going well. 
you know, it just wasn't coming together. Again, having said that Leeds were lucky to get away with a point at Ellen Road, I think equally down at the Amex, you know, Brighton had most of that game, should have should have won it. They have pace in the team. They, they're very good out wide. They're very efficient, I think. Whenever I watch them, they're very good at using the ball that they have to make something of it. Um, and yeah, I, 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 when I looked at Wolves, um, the very first game of the season, I thought to myself, kind of perfect start that because that's a team you really do want to be beating and a team you do really want to be competing with. Brighton, I think, are the sort of team who you want to be beating and competing with if you want to be in a high mid-table position, you know, kind of knocking on top half or certainly a long way clear of uh, the relegation places. I just can't see Brighton being involved in that at all this year. So it would be a, a really good marker. And I, as I said, I almost feel that Marsh might take more satisfaction from going to Brighton and winning than he did from beating Chelsea like that at the weekend because it's a difficult game. I think giving a point from this one, you'd have to say, is a is a, a very good uh, very good result. And particularly with the context of the, the other results at the start of this season, that number of points on the board from the games we've played, I think would be unbelievably good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I d- I'm not sure that Brighton would think of a point from Saturday as a bad result either. Both in form, both going along nicely so far. Let's yeah, play out the draw then. Yeah, absolutely. Call nil nil beforehand. <laughs> well, the Italian draw. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not doing predictions then this season. No, we've, we've decided to, to knock that one on the head. Yeah, which is just as well because we'd, we'd all have predicted a Chelsea win last week, apart from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right then. Well, we'll see how it all pans out and we will uh, get back together Monday morning, you and I, Phil, and uh, debrief the game. Are uh, you going down to it? Yes, uh, I'll be on the road Saturday morning. Can't wait, actually. Should be a good game. Safe travels then. And we'll get back together Monday to see how all that went and how right or probably wrong we were <laughs> about it all. We'll see you then. The Phil Hay Show.